go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Today is a special day, as we said before. Today is actually my wedding anniversary too. My wife is serving in Conquerors, but we've been married 12 years today. I've had the privilege of being married to my best friend, 12 years. And to share my wedding anniversary with you all. Thank you, brother. That I am. So Galatians chapter 4. Today is a special day, not least because it is my wedding anniversary, but also it is our baby dedications. And for a special day, I really sense that the Lord has put on my heart a special topic. And that is the topic of adoption. And so if you'd like a title for this message, I've called it Adopted for Life. And I'd like us to read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 7, Galatians chapter 4. This is what Paul, the apostle, writes to us. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have gathered around your word in singing. And now we gather around your word in speaking and listening. Lord, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, would you open the doctrine of adopting grace into our lives and our hearts. Lord, give us wide eyes to behold this, wide eyes to see this. Lord, for all those that are here today that do not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray in this moment through the gift of preaching, through your word, would their eyes be opened to behold you in your wondrous fatherhood. Lord, would their eyes be opened through preaching, would your word speak into their lives and their hearts and would lives be changed in a moment that they may experience adopting grace? Oh Lord, for those that know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, would there be no individual in this room, leave this room unaware of how you feel about them. You are a faithful and kind Father. So amaze us afresh by adopting grace. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Russ Moore is the Dean of the School of Theology and Senior Vice President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And this is his story, his and Maria's story, of the moment when they adopted two boys from Russia. This is what he says. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, where we were led to the boys that Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. Leaving them at the end of the day was painful, but leaving them the final day before going home and waiting for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us have ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears too. So I turned around to walk back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of my English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. When Maria and I at long last received the call to say that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. My mother-in-law gathered some wildflowers growing between cracks in the pavement outside the orphanage. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight, all to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back for the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, Sergei, that place is a pit. If only you knew what is waiting for you, a home with a mummy and daddy that love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates, and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was the squalor but they had no other reference point, and to them it was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away, but I still remember those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I often see myself there all over again. And as I think back over the last 11 years, of, I've had the privilege and joy of being a pastor. First of all, in Christchurch, Wales, UK, and now here in Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. As I think back over these years, my mind is filled with 
numerous moments, numerous moments of great joy. My mind is flooded with those moments as I consider the last 11 years. Moments where you get to see people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Moments where you watch the gospel at work in somebody's marriage and you see people who who were estranged coming back together in grace. Sheer moments of joy as you see God working in the lives of his people. And baby dedications for me would be one of those moments. One of those highlights. Those highlights as you see parents who you love and respect dearly lined up along the stage. And you are aware that you, you get to stand with them and love them as we all do and encourage them and pray for them. We get to stand with them and thank God for the gift of childhood. And we get to stand with them and and give thanks for the way they will surely train their children in the way they should go. Few moments, though, have given me more joy or greater joy than the moment when among those numbered being dedicated, there are individuals, babies or children, that have been adopted. Today was one of those moments. Simon and Michelle Wood, four girls. See, Simon and Michelle Wood have seven children. They have three who are their bloodline. But those four, all sisters, were adopted by the Woods. That's why it took them so long to come here to help serve this church and help plant this church because they were in the process of adopting those dear girls. few moments in my pastoral life, have provided me with more joy than moments like that. Moments when you get to see and admire the parents. Admire them for their grace. Admire them for their compassion. Admire them for their unselfishness. For each time I encounter a parent who has adopted a child, I I feel the pleasure of God, and I trust they do as well. I, I sense the smile of God as an expression of their compassion and unselfishness. And each time, as I encounter parents like that, I'm reminded of the adopted grace that I've received and that you've received by God the Father. And each time, I'm overwhelmed by God's love for me, that he would do that for me, and that he would do that for you. And so I wasn't surprised when I was informed that chapter 19 of J.R. Packer's classic work, Knowing God, starts this way. It starts with a question. He says, what is a Christian? And then he answers it. The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one that has God as Father. For our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Listen, the truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. My friends, I think he is absolutely right. What is a Christian? Well, make no mistake, to truly understand what a Christian is, you have to understand that a Christian is one that has God as Father. And within understanding that, we need to see that the truth of adoption 
gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. And so here's my hope this morning. I come to church this morning with hopes. Here is my hope. If you are a Christian, it is my prayer this morning that as we gather around God's word and as we focus ourselves onto adopting grace as seen in Galatians 4 verse 1 to 7, it is my hope that you as individuals would be freshly aware and freshly convinced of God's personal and particular and passionate love for you. See, one of the grieving things about being a pastor is not primarily dealing with people's massive sins. It's not. Because they're just like me in that. They sin, I sin. One of the most grieving things is when I encounter Christians that are unconvinced of God's love for them. That are not certain of it. That are unsure as to how God really feels about them. In fact, actually, if the truth be known, they're they're suspicious of God. They're not settled with how he potentially feels about them. And they feel then that God, by all grace, is probably tolerating them. And maybe you're here this morning and that's you. Well, I have a hope this morning. I I have a hope that as we examine adopting grace, that you may leave freshly convinced and freshly amazed by God's personal and passionate and particular love for you. I want you to experience that, but more importantly, I believe God laid this message on my heart because he wants you to experience that. He wants you to know how he feels about you. And I have a hope for you if you're a non-Christian too. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then it is my hope that as we examine adopting grace together, that you would be convicted and convinced of God's love for you as demonstrated most clearly through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And as a result of reviewing that, you would put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And in that moment, you would go from an object of God's wrath, which is your present situation, to an object of divine mercy and an experience of adopting grace. That's my hope. That's what I want. That's what I believe the Lord wants. And so to that end, let us give ourselves then to Galatians chapter 4, verses one through seven. Now, I'm aware as you hit verse one, it is kind of one of those awkward moments. You feel like you've gone along to a party and everybody is talking. You don't know who to talk to. And so you examine a group and you insert yourself into a group and you're trying to figure out what have they been talking about for the last half an hour. That's what happens when you hit verse one of chapter four. It's kind of weird to try and work out what is he on about. And so by way of background, let me explain to help bring you up to speed with what exactly is happening here. The Galatian church has been planted by the Apostle Paul. He has given himself to preaching the gospel in Galatia, and as a result, a church has gathered a group of individuals who love each other and are committed to each other as a local church. But this local church, as Paul writes, is going through major crisis. They have been infiltrated by false teaching. Since Paul has left, false teachers have come in and they have convinced the Galatian church of a false gospel. A false gospel which requires an abandoning of the gospel of grace and requires an embracing of a false gospel, namely 
that the only way to ultimate salvation is through the Mosaic law, is through the law that Moses gave the Jews. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul just says, who has bewitched you? He is looking them in their eyes and guys, and just explaining, guys, what are you doing? You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the only way of salvation. That is how we got here. But who has bewitched you? Because now it's as if you think that you have to obey the Mosaic law to be saved. But that is not true. So who has bewitched you? Who has put this spell on you? And for the remaining chapters, he writes to them to let them know of their foolishness and their heresy that they are taken on board. He basically looks them in the eyes and goes, what are you doing abandoning the gospel? And so he explains to them at length, what is the actual value of the Mosaic law? It's not to salvation through obedience to it directly. The Mosaic law is always about helping us see our need for a savior, our sinfulness and our need for a savior. You've misunderstood Galatians. You've misunderstood what this law was for. But more importantly, you have moved away from the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, as we hit then chapter 4, that's the group hug that's going on. That's the conversation that's happening. That's the conversation that we have just walked in on. He's still communicating to them about the grounds of their salvation and the error of what they are believing as they fall once again into legalism. And so in chapter 4, Paul is still in that conversation. He's particularly in that conversation referring to their old life, their old way of life. And in verse 3 then, he says this, chapter 4. He says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In the same way. You see, for the Jews, prior to Christ, the Jews had been enslaved to the law. They were utterly convinced that the only way through salvation is to obey this law to the nth, and as a result, they were enslaved to it. They tried so hard, but they could never fulfill it. They could never do it. But however hard they tried, they found themselves enslaved to the law. Well, that's not the Gentiles' understanding. Galatians aren't Jews. They're just dudes hanging out. They don't know anything about a particular law until the false teachers come in. But they also have an old self. Prior to the finished work of Jesus Christ, they had been enslaved too. Not to the law, but to their own idols. Idols of their own imagination and idols of creation. That's why it says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's talking to them about this was you. You weren't enslaved to the law, but you're enslaved to yourself, to idols of your own imagination and making. And if we're sharp, we realize that Paul is also addressing us in this process. For we were all by nature children of wrath, were we not? We were also enslaved to our own philosophies and our own idols and our own sin. That's what we learn in Galatians and in Romans and in Ephesians. We were Sovereign Grace Church Sydney prior to Christ was enslaved to our sin. That's the backdrop to verses 4 through 7. But in verses 4 through 7, 
Paul now begins to communicate to us about adopting grace. This whole backdrop culminates with the glories of knowing that God is your father. And so it culminates with a bird's eye view of God's passionate and particular and personal love for you. And so I have two points that I want us to proceed with and finish with. Here's the first. Number one, we see God's love in the means of our adoption. That's what we see in verses 4 through 5. We see God's love in the means of our adoption. See, the provision of the Savior for those who were enslaved under the law and for those who were enslaved by their son is wonderfully revealed to us in verses 4. The release from that enslavement through Jesus Christ is revealed in verse 4. C.J. Mahaney says this about this verse. He says, In these words, we encounter the turning point in history and the most important point in redemptive history. Apart from the words we read in Galatians 4, verse 4, and the saving events that these words describe, we would have no hope of reconciliation with God. But in these words, and from these words, we discover that God has graciously intervened to address our sinful condition and plight and provided for us the Savior that we so desperately need. That is correct. In this verse, this verse alone, verse 4, reveals the plan and purposes of God that were determined in eternity past. Verse 4 reveals to us the glories of the sovereignty of God and His initiative, His divine initiative towards sinners like you and me, thus revealing God's love for sinners like you and me. Let's look at it. Verse 4. You were enslaved to your sin. But, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. My friends, behold the love of God for you. Behold the love of God revealed through His initiative in sending His forth, His Son, to those who are enslaved by their sin, those like you and me. God sent forth His Son. While we were slaves, while we were enslaved to our sin and helpless to do anything about it in and of ourselves, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son from heaven to earth, from Galilee to Jerusalem, from the manger to the cross. God sent forth His Son. Why? For you. For you. Because He loves you. See, last week we saw Jesus on the cross, did we not? And we saw the cry of anguish. My God. My God. Why would you forsake me? In deep distress as the Father pours out the wrath on His Son. Jesus is overwhelmed 
In his humanity, he does not know what this will feel like. And in his humanity, he does not know how long it will take to take on the wrath of God in our place. He is mocked. And yet it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was love for the Father and love for you. As he died as a sacrifice for you. And yet in verse 4, we don't have the Savior's eye view, do we? We have the Father's eye view of the same moment. You see, when we examine verse 4, we realize this is not the Savior talking. This is God the Father. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And when we pause on that, and when we linger on that, and when we see divine adopting grace on that, it is then and then alone that I think we feel the full effect of that love. See, I am a father. I'm a father to three wonderful children that bring me great joy as a dad. I have Lydia, who's crazy, Amy, who's funny and smart, and Josh, who is my only boy, who brings his father great, great joy. And life has not always been easy with Joshua because Josh has had a lot of health issues in his life. When he was born, he, he only had one and a half kidneys that actually were working. He was diagnosed as having two holes in his heart that we knew very early on that we, they would need to have heart surgery on. And it was clear by the time he got to about two years old that he could not talk. And so he was actually nearly five before he said, Dad. He just couldn't say it. He would just talk through, through, through vocal sounds or, or screams to try and get our attention. And so when he was around two, we taught him, we taught him some sign language so that we could actually communicate to him. And I'll never forget, for me, as a father, the first operation we had to go through with his cleft palate. See, all of the muscles in his mouth, instead of running this way, they, they ran that way. And so he, his mouth would just not physically move. It would not take place inside his mouth. And so they told us that the only way to solve this would be to cut from just behind his teeth all the way back down his throat to take the muscles out and to move them around again. He's four. And so I'll never forget taking him in. He was sitting on his booster cushion, smiling at me. He didn't know what was going to happen. And so we took him to the hospital. And when we arrived at the hospital, because by now he was well acquainted with hospitals, he knew this probably wasn't good news. <laughs> And so the day before the operation, we settled him into the ward that we had been assigned to. And Josh was fine most of the time until the doctors would appear. <laughs> when the doctors appeared, he knew this could be painful. And so because he couldn't talk, he would always look at me and just go, he just wanted to know, are they just talking? And I'd say, yeah, they're just talking, seeing how you are. Seeing how you're settling in. Well, the next day, the doctors came again. This was about the fourth time. And so he looked at me, talking. And I said, son, not this time. It's time for your operation. And he started to cry. I started to cry. And they asked me to just sit with him on the trolley as they wheeled us to the Operating theatre, we had to sign in. Emma would, did not feel it was wise for her to attend, which it would not have been wise for her to attend. 
And so we went into the operating theater and they said, you know, Mr. Taylor, could you, could you just ho- hold him down while we put a mask on him? And if I could have taken his place in that moment, I would. He started to cry. He was getting anxious. And he is looking at me as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? They put him to sleep. And I left the room, began to pray for him, that God would heal him through the gift of surgery. But as I left the room, I was amazed by the gospel. See, I love my son. I dearly love him. If I could have removed him from that bed in that moment and taken his place, I would have. But I couldn't. But I'm an imperfect father. I do not love my son and the way God loves his son. I do not. My love for my son is insignificant compared to the father's love for his son. The profound love for his only begotten son. For this is my son in whom I am well pleased, we heard cry. But the son in the garden of Gethsemane Dad, is there any other way? Three times. The father who deeply loves his son says nothing. He hangs on a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father who deeply loves his son with love that we can barely only imagine says then he turns his face away and pours out his righteous wrath, his awe of righteous provocation of wrath on his son. All I did was hold my son down for a moment due to an operation. But the father ensued his wrath on his son whom he deeply loves. Behold the love of God. Do you feel it? sense it. That's how much he loves you. When the son cried out, he did not answer. Time and time again, he remained silent. Can you imagine what that would have felt like as a father? But he does it for you. You know, if this sentence finished there in verse 4, it would be enough to a fuel worship for the rest of our lives. To know that God sent forth his son to redeem us, to break us free from slavery. To know that God sent forth his son so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. To know for sure that heaven is our home. To know that for sure should overwhelm us and amaze us for the rest of our lives. If this sentence ended there, it would be enough. But it doesn't. And so we don't. This is what he says. Listen to verse 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. 
adoption as sons. See, God sent forth his son not only with an atoning purpose, not only with the purpose to redeem, God sent forth his son with an adopting purpose too. A purpose to adopt. God's purpose did not conclude with redemption. God's purpose culminated with adoption. In love and grace, he made slaves into sons. In love and grace, he made people who were far from him and enslaved to their sin within that nature. He brought them near and said, I declare you, I declare you to be a son and daughter, my son and daughter. So Dr. Packer was right, was he not? For it is here in adoption that we encounter the deepest insight into the greatness of God's love. Listen, the doctrine of justification should amaze us. The doctrine that he has redeemed us, not in part but in full, should absolutely amaze us. But the doctrine of adoption, it should overwhelm us. It should overwhelm us. That the Father would do that so that I as a slave could become a son. J.O. Packer, once again, he says it this way. He says, Justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand, by nature, under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our Maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the Gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Listen, closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. My friends, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. To know that you've been forgiven of your sin, to know that you've been redeemed and set free, you have been justified once and for all, that is a great thing. But to know that you have been loved and cared for by the Father, that is greater still. And so there's a great and a greater, a great and a greater still. Yes, yeah, yeah there is. Justification should amaze us. But adoption should overwhelm us. So let me ask you this. Here's a question for you that I want you to consider. How do you think God feels about you? 
Genuinely. Not the Sunday morning answer, or not the other people around answer. But when you lie in your bed at night, and you consider the truth that one day you will meet your maker, how do you think he feels about you? Not talking here about your view of God, how you feel about God. I'm talking here about how you believe he feels about you. Do you perceive God as full of affection for you? Do you think of God as desirous to be close to you? As you think of God, do you imagine him and perceive in your mind as he will be full of generosity towards you? How do you think he feels about you? Listen, if the words affection and closeness and generosity do not describe your perception of God and experience of God, I submit to you there is far more than that God wants you to know about his fatherly care of your life. If generosity and closeness and affection do not describe the words that come to mind as you consider how God feels about you, there is so much more for you then in the doctrine of adopting grace. And so I want to encourage you, if those words do not describe you, perhaps you've become more aware of sin than adopting grace. Perhaps you've become more aware of how you have offended God than how he has paid the price for that offense so that you could be adopted into his family. Or perhaps you've become more aware of justifying grace and are focused more on that and have left out adopting grace. So it ends up being feelingless. Justifying grace, yes, get that. Adopting grace, no. Listen, if that's your story... If the words affection and closeness and generosity do not describe your perception of God and present experience of God, I want to encourage you, mainline into adopting grace for a while. (laughs) Plug yourself in to the glories of what it is to know that God is your Father. Isolate in and throughout Scripture passages like Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7, and meditate on them and do not move from them until you sense something of the truth that it beholds. The fatherly love of God. If you want a scholar to hold your hand, then knowing God by J.R. Packer would be a good place to start. Turn to chapter 19 and you will behold the love of the Father for you. Children of the Loving God by Sinclair Ferguson is another outstanding book on adoption. And if you're a bigger reader, then Adopt It Into God's Family by Trevor Burke. Also an excellent book. But if those words do not expand and describe your present experience of how God feels about you, then plug yourself in for a while into God's adopting grace because make one thing clear. We see God's love in the means of our adoption. The Father turned his face away so that he would never have to turn his face away from you. Hold the love of God. Number two then, in closing. We see God's love in the experience of our adoption. We not only see it in the means, we see it in the experience. Let's look, verse six. And because you are sons, 
God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And here again, Paul directs our attention very deliberately to the initiative of God. And he does it because he wants to reveal to us God's love. And so verses 4 through 5, we see that our position as sons and daughters was secured by the initiative of God of sending forth his son, correct? That was God's initiative. What did you bring to your salvation? Your sin. That's about it. But what we see in verse 4 to 5 is while you were enslaved, God sent forth his son. God takes the initiative. But then in verses 6 through 7, you also realize that our experience of that adoption is also the result of God's initiative. Our experience of our adoption is the result of God sending forth the Holy Spirit into our lives so that we may indeed experience what it is to be adopted by the King of Kings. It is scandalous grace and incredible initiating love, but That's not the thing Paul wants us to note in these verses. It's good, but there's greater. See, I think the thing that Paul wants us to notice is not only initiative. Paul wants us to notice the cry. The cry of Abba, Father. See, this cry is the cry of the converted. This cry is the privilege and experience of those who genuinely know Jesus as Savior and King. This cry is the cry that comes from all those who genuinely know what it is to receive adopting grace. This is the cry of the converted. And this cry is evidence of God's personal, passionate, and particular love for you. That's what that verse is about. See, this is the most unexpected place, I think, to encounter God's love. It is the most unexpected. My response is an expression of your love. Yes, that is exactly what he is saying. This cry, when understood, should bring about great assurance for us of God's love for us. Let one smarter than I am, Mr. C.H. Spurgeon, explain to you why. This is what he says. I once knew a good woman... A good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubts, it came down to this. She knew that she loved Christ, but she was afraid that he did not love her. For that is a doubt that will never trouble me. Never. Not only by any possibility, because I am sure of this. That the heart is so corrupt naturally, that love for God never did get there without God putting it there. Did you get that? It never got there without God putting it there. And so you may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. And so you may conclude with absolute certainty then that God loves you if you love God. 
How wonderful is that? And how true is that? This is classic Mr. Spurgeon, and this is classic Mr. Spurgeon coming from classic Mr. Apostle Paul, which is coming from classic God. This is profound. If you love God, then that is deep evidence that without any doubt, He loves you. If you have a love for God in your heart, if the cry of your heart is, Abba, Father, if the cry of your heart is, God, I love you. Lord, even though I fail, I want to live for you. I desire you. Lord, Abba, Father, you are my Father. You are my King. If that is the cry of your heart, that cry did not get there by itself. That cry was given you by another. That cry was given you by God the Father who through the gift of regeneration sent his Holy Spirit into your lives as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, as a deposit then links with your spirit and then cries, Abba, Father. The very evidence of your love for God is evidence that he loves you. Isn't that wonderful? So if you're ever wondering, how does God feel about me? I don't know if he loves you. Do you love him? Yes. (laughs) Then rest. He loves you. Because you would never love him in and of yourself. Your heart is so corrupt, your heart is so deceitful that if that love is there and that love is genuine, it is remarkable grace and remarkable evidence that he loves you. Because it's a gift. The cry of Abba Father, it's a gift. How sweet is the sound of saving grace, don't you think? What love. And if that love for God is there in your life, then look, verse 7. That love for God is there. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, it is not immediately obvious, but this is the first time in this text that the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, speaks in the singular. All the way through, he's speaking in the plural. He's talking about we, sons. He's talking all the way through in the plurality. But it is now that he talks about the singular. It is as if God, in verse 7, wants to understand, okay, you all got it corporately? Great. Now I want to talk to each one of you individually. I want to talk to each one. God wants to address each and every individual in the room. And he wants each and every individual in the room to understand and to experience his particular Passion and personal love for each one of us. So if you're experiencing love for God, listen, you are no longer a slave then, but a son. God sent forth his son to die in your place so that you may have life and life in abundance, so that you may be justified and so that you may be adopted. He didn't do this just for some vague blob of an individual people. He did it for you. He called your name to John, Mike, Dave, Nick. He calls your name. And in verse 7, he gives eye contact to each individual and says, So you, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, in the ancient world, if you didn't have a male heir, 
that no one would inherit. It was illegal to pass your inheritance on to daughters. And so if you didn't have a son, you would adopt a son. And you would pass all the inheritance on to them. God had a son. He didn't need us. And yet he killed his son and adopted us. Behold the love of God. And behold, it was indeed not for a vague multitude. It was for you. He came after you. Listen, folks, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then here's what I want you to know as you leave today. How does God feel about you? He passionately loves you. He does. How do I know? Here's how I know. 2,000 years ago, he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross so that Jesus Christ could make a way for you at the right time to experience not the Father's wrath, but the Father's adopting grace. In love, he sent his son for you. For in and of yourself right now, you are an object of his wrath. Don't feel bad about it. So was I. None of us are born into the joy of the Lord. We are born into rebelling against him. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because of our lack of acknowledgement of God, we are cut off from God and one day we'll stand before God and give an account for our entire lives. And the Bible is clear that where we are found in sin, we will be removed from him in wrath for all eternity. For someone must take the punishment. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not receive that wrath and instead would receive eternal life. Folks, I want to encourage you. How does God feel about you? Well, right now you are an object of his wrath. But make no mistake, he loves you and that's why he sent his son so that you can escape what is bearing down on your life as an inevitability. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that he rose again, then you will be saved. My friends, do that. Today I put before you life and death. I put before you wrath and adopting grace. Choose life. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is not about you. Christianity is not about you. It is all about Jesus. So put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. There is no other way. And in that moment, you will experience his passionate, personal, and particular love for you. As he not only redeems you, but he adopts you. If you are a Christian, though, already, which is many of you, here's what I want you to know. How does God feel about you? He passionately and particularly, and personally, loves you. That's how he feels about you. How do I know? I know it because I see it in the means of our adoption. For at the right time, God sent forth his son. He loved his son. But he sent forth his son because he loves you. 
His son willingly went and cried the cry of anguish and still remained on the cross because he loves you. Behold the love of God in the means of our adoption. I know God's passionate, particular and personal love for me because I see that means. But behold it too and know it too through the experience of our adoption. If you love God, you can be sure that he loves you too without any doubt. And so here's how we apply this then. We believe it, and by God's grace, we delight in it. We make it our delight. We make it so that it overwhelms us. John Owen, just in my conclusion, he says, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. That is absolutely correct. That is not to diminish significant sin in our lives. That is not to diminish offending the Father in our sin. But what Mr. Owen is carefully and wonderfully saying is, listen, the most offense we can do to the Lord, the most sorrow and burden we can lay on Him is to look Him in the eyes and say, I don't believe you love me. Because when we do that, we are looking at the Father and what more can He do? What more do we want? He sent forth his son. And then he sent forth his spirit. What more can he do? So how do we apply this? We believe it. We stand on it. And by God's grace, we delight in it. What a savior, eh? What a father. And what divine love which without doubt points at you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is a pure joy to stand before you and to stand on the ground of adopting grace. Lord, to consider that you would send your son to die in our place, Lord, would that truth overwhelm us? Lord, justification is great, but adoption is greater still. And so in grace, would you allow these truths to affect our hearts, not only this day, but every day? As Luther said, would we arise each day feeling that your son died only yesterday. Why? For me. And for us. Lord, for all those that don't know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, would they leave today knowing your affection for them? But would they also leave knowing the danger they are in? For you have made in a way of escape through the rescue of your son, Lord, would they turn then to your son, even in this moment, and confess you as Lord and King. Father, burn these truths into our hearts, and would we never move on. Jesus died for us. The Father sent him. And so in your love, would we find great joy and great rest. In Jesus' name.